The scripture reading this evening will be read from John chapter 15, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and 16, uh, 1 through 4. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will kept yours also. They will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I did not if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word may be fulfilled might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he, had, he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Which one? Which two? Take that one. Sam needs a pitch pipe, and he's about to share kisses with somebody. When he said he had uh, to choose an invitation song during the sermon, I was waiting for somebody to say he's got plenty of time. <laughs> but I was the only one that came up with that. We're making a transition uh, like we did last week in our series. Uh, we've called it on Sunday nights, Bound Together. And what we're trying to do is cultivate a healthy attachment, a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of all the things that have been discussed and have been looked at and have been studied in the upper room, there's one thing that most certainly happened that after the time together in the upper room, when Jesus spent in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, after that time together with those 11 disciples, those men lived for and died for Jesus. Unquestionable. They had devotion to him, they loved him, they cherished him, and they hung on every word that he said. And so what we're trying to do as we walk through the sections of the, of the upper room is ask ourselves, as we look at this text and as we look at this um, conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, what was it about what he said that caused them to be so closely attached to Jesus himself. And that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for myself as well, to have a relationship with Jesus that is so closely united that we would live for him, and most certainly we would die for him. The first four lessons of this series in 13 and 14, the chapters, really taught us how to build this kind of relationship. 
where it comes from, how it's cultivated, how it's built from the ground up. And if you missed that, that's, you can find that now on our uh, website. Thank you very much to Cody for working to get that restored for us so our, our sermons will be posted there. Um, the last five lessons of the series, we did number one last week, so the second one is tonight, is really going to serve two purposes. The first purpose is sort of a diagnostic. And what Jesus does through the next few sections that we're going to look at is tell you what it's like to be in a relationship with him. So if you are in a relationship with Jesus, here's what's going to happen. And that serves two purposes. Number one, it's diagnostic. It tells you that if these things are not happening, if you're not experiencing them, if you're not seeing them, then you actually might not be in a relationship with Jesus. You might be super religious, you might be doing a lot of things, but you might not be in a relationship with Jesus if these things aren't transpiring. The second thing that it does is that it prepares us and builds within us anticipation. What I mean by that is it tells you what's coming. We likened it last week to, uh, you know that book that most expectant mothers get when they're going to have their first child, what to expect when you're expecting. And, and so before you ever enter into the relationship of having a child, you can read this book and you can see what's coming your way. Well, that's really what Jesus is doing here. If you're going to be in a relationship with him, here's what's coming your way. And last week we learned that a healthy relationship with Jesus means that you and I will bear fruit. Fruit will come from us. And the upshot of that is that the New Testament reveals that the fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is character change within us. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of, the product of, the Spirit of God being within us. And so if you are in a relationship with God, with Christ, you will have character change in your life. You will change. Tonight, it changes a little bit. Jesus is going to warn us about the pending difficulty that's coming our way because we're going to be attached to him, because we're going to have a relationship with him. Now, up to this point in their life, the disciples have not necessarily felt the heat coming their way. They have watched it as outsiders. They have been disciples of Jesus. They've watched people condemn and judge and criticize and, and be hard on Jesus, but they've sort of been on the peripheral of that. They've, they've stood there and observed it. They've probably taken a little bit of flack, but they have not been the direct object of the hatred of the world that Jesus was. And now Jesus is telling them in this moment before he's about to die that you're on deck. You're up next. It's going to come. This is one of those what to expect when you're expecting moments. The heat of the world is going to come. And so that's where we are tonight. I need to do two quick clarifications with you, then we'll get into the flow of the scripture um, so that we can make sense of the words that are used by Jesus. The first thing, what we've got to do, the two things we have to clarify is who is actually involved in this? And then what is actually going to transpire? And so you see, first of all, when we say who is involved, there's only two groups. This is very, very uh, common in John's literature. John, the, the apostle, he wrote, um, he wrote John, the gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, where he is very, very simple in his grammar. 
Now, every word and every sentence is a well of information that you could go on forever, but he's very simple. And one of the simple things that John does is makes a distinction between with Christ or with the world. There's really not this sort of like hazy, I'm a follower, but I struggle, and I kind of have this gray area where I think I'm in, but I'm not sure I'm in. John is so clear with Jesus that you are either one of the you who are with him or you're of the world. He makes that very, very distinct. And so what I want to do is clarify what John means by the world because it's a common phrase that John uses. Uh, John uses it 80 times in his writings in just the gospel and his three letters, not counting Revelation. The, the phrase, the world, it's pretty common with John. But it's also very common with us church people, Right? Don't we hear that a lot in our language? We talk about the world and we kind of have this like, you know, those people that kind of exist outside of our drywall that is here and, and we call them the world. We've got to really be thoughtful about what we mean when we say the world. And what I don't want to do is leave it to chance and assumption that we all are saying the same thing. Because it's interesting when you look through the scripture what the world means. For instance, John 3.16, Jesus said God has so loved the world. But then John says in 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world. What are we supposed to make of that? So when we say the world and Jesus says the world, we've got to make sure we know what that means. And first of all, it refers to people, actual skin, breathing, humans, like you and like me, people, humans. I think we have to keep that in our minds and not be so abstract with it sometimes because we can um, just quickly discard and separate ourselves from that casual phrase, the world, and miss that Jesus is really talking about not some abstract notion, but actual people that are separated from the actual love of God that are on the course to an actual eternal destruction. That's real. And that phrase, the world, just kind of gets tossed around in our vocabulary as if it's just some sort of generalized thing. It's people. And a good gospel student knows that it was you at one time. Okay? The second thing that John means when he says the world is not just the people that wear the skin, that live in the existence and, 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 and are out there, but he also means the word cosmos, which means the system of the world. So when John would say in 1 John 2, hey, don't love the world, what he's talking about there is the system that tells you how you'll get value, love, acceptance, worth, identity, everything that God is trying to offer you. There's a system of the world that offers you that, and it's deceiving you. If you want some more study on that, you can look in Luke chapter 6, verse about 24 through 28. Jesus will there in his in, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes talks about the system of the world. For instance, if you want to have prestige, make sure the people of the world speak well of you. If you want to have comfort, make sure your belly's full. If you want to have joy, make sure you're always laughing. That's the system of the world. And Jesus comes and he inverts that system and says, if you want to be powerful, be a servant. If you want to have a lot, give it all away. If you want to have joy, suffer with those who suffer. Weep with those who weep. And you'll find joy. Does that make sense? Jesus flips the system of the world on its head. So the world as a phrase means the people who are currently in the system 
that lives opposed to the way that God wants you to live and enjoy peace and love and kindness from God. That's what it means, the system that is against God. And so really that's uh, people that are having their eternal desires fulfilled outside of God. Now the second group, so you've got the world, and then Jesus says, you. Those are the two distinct groups. And chapter 15, verse 19 gives us a clarification of what the word you means when he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John's pretty clear on this. He's pretty simple. The you is just simply a counterculture that follows Jesus and not the world. It answers the call of Jesus to not just run from the world, but be a part of him. And so if you want to become one of the you, you've got to step out of the system of the world that promises you satisfaction but never delivers and run to Jesus where you find your full satisfaction. That's what it means to be part of the you. So you've got the you and the world. Now, think about what you might call yourself and then do an honest inventory about what God might clarify you as. Where do you go? Which one are you? Okay, so we have the world and the you, and what Jesus says is the world is going to hate the you. So we've got to understand what the word hate means. Basically, there's two ways in the Bible it's used. One way is that you would just love something less than another, not necessarily in a negative way. You, um, Jesus told us that we must, whoever comes to him must hate certain things. And what he meant by that was not this detesting, persecuting, hurting. What he meant was there's got to be a hierarchy of your love. You've got to love me primary. So hate was just referring to loving something less. But when Jesus says the word hate here, he's not meaning just preferring something over another. He's meaning to pursue something, detesting it, that you might persecute it, that you might hurt it. That you'd be so frustrated and offended by something that you're going to actively go after it to squash it and close it down. That's what it means to hate. So you've got the world, people that are bought up into the system that is against God, that is going to actively pursue with detesting, vile beliefs against those who follow Christ. That's the setup, okay? And if you're part of the you, what Jesus says is, it's coming. It's a reality of being connected to Christ. So let's walk through this text. Um, four sections for you tonight. We'll hope to make some sense of it. We're going to see how, we're going to see what I should say provokes the hate. We'll see the principle behind the hate. Our power to overcome the hate. And finally, the potential of the hate. What it can do for us. So let's start with what provokes it. What does Jesus mean when he says... Okay, the hate's going to come. The first section is verses about 18 through 21. And Jesus says this really simply in verse 21. <clears throat> he says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Now before that he said, Hey, they've hated me and they're going to hate you. Now, Jesus is not guessing here. In fact, the language, if you go back and look into it, is an imperative that it's going to take place. And so he, what he's saying is, I've shown up into the world and these people have actually pursued me with hatred, detesting me. And if they've hated me, which is a certainty because they have, they will 
hate you. Now why? What stokes that flame? What, what provokes that kind of hatred? Jesus says it's really simply, it's this. It's on account of my name. Now we've got to make some sense of what he means by account of my name because it's not just the, like, the mentioning of a name. It's not just name dropping Jesus like all of a sudden gets a, a snarl and a reaction from people. Because to the Jews, a name was much more than just um, some word or some letters smashed together to make a sound so that you know an association with somebody. They actually gave names for a purpose, for a reason at that time. And so to the Jews, a name was not just what people called you, but it was of your history. And really what a name did is defined who you were. This is why the Jews, the Israelites, were so serious about the name of God. Why they had different names for him. Like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Or Elohim, which is the mighty God, the creator God. And then, as Matt talked about, I think two weeks ago, the name of God, Yahweh, which we really don't even know how it's pronounced. Because after Israel and then Judah went into um, uh, the, the, the dispersion, excuse me, and the temple was destroyed... In the temple was the only place that you could use the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And as they left the temple and it was was destroyed, there was some oral transmission of that name. But over time, the Israelites and the Jews lost the name. They didn't know how to say it. And so when they would come to that in in, in the scripture, Yahweh, they would take Yahweh out and they would say Adonai, which meant the Lord. That's where we get the word Lord today. Okay? So then the word name was so important. And what name was doing was revealing who somebody was. So when God said to Moses, I am who I am, he was revealing more of himself to you. And so when Jesus came and he said, they're going to hate you on account of my name. What he's getting at is they're going to hate you because I've revealed to them that I'm God. And you've bought into that truth. Are you with me? On account of my name, what he's saying is, who I really am is the Son of God. I really am deity, and that's what they hate, is that I've claimed to be God, and I am God, and you believe that I'm God. And this hatred, this provoking of hatred, is not first century hatred, it's life hatred. It's existed forever in all different cultures. Right now this debate is taking place. There's a book at Barnes and Noble. The man wrote the textbook that I had in my class at OU on New Testament. He was, he's, he's kind of a snarky scholar and he wrote a book called How Jesus Became God and his theory is that Jesus was a man and after he died and they hid his body, his disciples converted him into God. Do You see, this still happens. On account of you and I saying Jesus was God, Jesus being God with us, Emmanuel, on account of his name, people hate that. That's what provokes the hatred. You see, the mention of Jesus' name didn't just frustrate Jewish people. It offended them. It was an offense. Remember, Paul said the preaching of the cross to the Greeks, it was a foolishness, like God died for you. But to the Jews, what did Paul say? It's a stumbling block. Because there's no way our God could ever have an image made of him. Good Jews would know that law, right? Number two, you shall have no graven image of God. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm God. But wait, you're an image of God. You're a person. 
it was an offense to them that he would do that. And John the Baptist shows up and he says, the banner that was over John the Baptist was, make ready the way of Adonai, the Lord. Oh, God? He's coming. Then Jesus said this in John 8. Eight times Jesus references, but in John 8 specifically, when they were ready to kill Jesus, he said, before Abraham was, I am. I'm God. Do you believe that about Jesus? Like we really can close up shop and be done if you don't. That he was God. And that belief will draw, the, will provoke hatred in those that do not believe Jesus is God. It will. This claim is huge. I am God, but it's also exclusive. I am the only God. And his name still provokes. So what's the principle behind the hatred? That's what provokes it, the name of Jesus, that he says that he was God. What's the principle behind it? Look in verses 22 through 25. Jesus says it pretty simple, but you'll see like a rhythm in these texts. 22, 23, 24, 25. There's a rhythm to what Jesus says here, but he simply says this. If I had not come, if I didn't show up, if God didn't put on flesh and come into the world... These people would not be guilty. You see, Jesus revealed himself. He showed up, and as he revealed himself, he says that he did two things. He spoke to them in verse 22, and then he did works in front of them that no one else could do in verse, I think, 24, 25, somewhere down there. Jesus spoke, and he did works. And in the speaking of Jesus, his words, and in the works of Jesus, he says, here's what it caused. It caused them to be aware of their guilt. And right there is where you'll find the principle of what causes people to hate, not just Christians, but Christianity and Jesus Christ. Here's, the, here's what the principle behind the hatred. If Jesus had not showed up, they would not be guilty. You see, guilt is the key to the hatred. And the principle is this, that Jesus Christ is not just in opposition to the world. Meaning Jesus Christ is not just saying, here's an option A, the world, and let me offer you option B, opposition. Jesus actually is more than opposition. He exposes the world. Are you with me? He's the light of the world. He exposes the world. He said it this way in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Do you see how Jesus is different than just a philosophy on how to live? Because really, that's kind of in vogue right now in our postmodern culture. Like, like everybody should just have a philosophy. How do you think you should live? How do I think I should live? And, and what do you think is right? And what do I think is right? And Jesus shows up and says, I, I'm not just interested in how you think you should live. I'm going to expose the error of your philosophy. And be ready for that ride in Christianity because it doesn't just empower you to expose other people. It opens you up to exposing yourself. And most people will sit in church pews and do Christian things and never come close enough to the light to feel the discomfort of being exposed. What I'm doing right now is trying to save the saved, if you'll hear me. 
that a lot of people will sit in pews, call themselves Christians and do Christian things and hold Christian things and practice Christian practices and never come close enough to the light to feel the discomfort of being exposed. Do you remember how Jesus told us to encounter somebody who had a log in their eye? Do you remember that or a speck in their eye? Pardon me. Did he say you should never, ever take something out of somebody's eye? Don't ever do that. No. He said, first do what? Take the log out of your own eye. Now, how many of you ever taken something out of your eye? You ever had like that sawdust in there? Maybe like, like a speck of wood? You ever got something real serious in there? One night in college, I used to sleep in my contact for like months on end, like three months at a time. And uh, my roommate told me like he had a friend that did that and it got like so attached to his eye, he had to have it surgically removed. Well, one morning at four in the morning, I woke up in my recliner and I blinked a few times and went back to bed and I woke up and I was thought I had my contacts in. Well, it must have fallen out, fallen out when I blinked and I didn't know that. And so I went to the bathroom and I couldn't get my contact out and I just went into meltdown mode. I was taking my fingernail on the backside and scraping, yeah, total meltdown mode. And my eye is just running, running. And I call the eye doctor and I get in my car and of course it's like the sunniest, snowiest day, you know, and like the light, I'm just draining. And I get to the eye doctor and he's like in there, look, he's like, there's nothing in here. So I get this glue, you know, like this ooze that goes for two weeks. It was painful to dig into my eye. Oh, I still remember it. Why would Jesus use the eye analogy with you about how to help expose somebody else? Because until you know the pain of it, you have no right doing it. Hear me. Sometimes Christians can stand so high on a pedestal, they've never felt the pain of taking the dust out of their eyes. Until you've come close to the light and felt the exposure of, oh my goodness, I have pride that is deep. And I have anger and I have thoughts and I have things in my life. And Jesus exposes that and cleanses you. You don't know the gentleness of going to another soul and saying, you've got a speck in your eye and I don't want it to be there anymore. This is going to hurt. Let's walk together and get it out. Okay? The principle of the hatred that comes to Christians is because Jesus Christ does not just oppose culture. He exposes culture. He exposes it. I want to caution us on one other thing with this, that there's a difference between the light of the world and the heat of the world. Light can exist in a room just by showing up as its presence and cause exposure. But heat is always a result of friction, two rough surfaces rubbing together. And if you'll watch like a lot of Christian dialogue on the internet, this is like the worst place in the world. First of all, YouTube is a terrible place to go to church, and the internet is a terrible place for fellowship and, and, and Christian dialogue to happen. That does not need to be the public square of Christian dialogue. You'll find a lot more heat than light on the internet. A lot more heat than light. And we need to really be thinking about that with regards to how we go about exposing the world. Okay, we've got to keep going. So you've got... What provokes the the hatred, Jesus' name, the principle behind it, that Christianity is not just opposition, but exposure. And we are people that have gone through that, so we have the compassion to walk with people. Let's talk about the power to overcome the hatred. Jesus says in verse 25 or 26, "The the helper 
comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Here's the power. This is the second mention in the upper room dialogue to the Holy Spirit coming. Now, in March the 1st, in two weeks, we're going to do an in-depth who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, okay? But here's the second reference. Jesus just mentioned first that he's going to come. Now he's saying something that he's going to do for us. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And what this means is that you and I, when we come to Christ, are no longer under the deception that the world has the solutions to the depths of our heart. Jesus does. And when he comes into your life, bearing witness of the truth to us, in us and in the Word, as he shows us what the truth is, it will be natural for you, follow me, for you to bear witness to somebody else about Christ. That is a natural process. You finally will have something to witness about because you've witnessed something in your own life. This term, bearing witness, is important. The the, the word witness has just gotten overused in Christian circles about what it means. But it really just means to testify to what you have seen. A witness is a testimony of some, from somebody who has seen something. So that means that, that we ought to be witnessing here in our church, people's lives changing, in our own homes, my life changing. And as you see, your relationship to Jesus Christ making you, bearing fruit, making you a better person, the person you want to be, and you find somebody else that you're close to, it'll be natural for you to bear witness. That Listen, my relationship with Christ is changing me, and I want to tell you about that. Do you see how natural that comes? The order, the steps have to be natural. The sequence has to be natural. If you don't do the work of having a relationship with Christ, you bearing witness is just some manipulation called evangelism. That's all it is. But when you finally can say to somebody, I want to tell you something that has helped my life that can help your life about a relationship, that's bearing witness. You see, you can't bear witness until you've actually witnessed something. Christ working in our life. That's the difference between a scribe and a prophet. If you look through the Bible, how many scribes were killed in the Bible? How many prophets? Scribes tell you what they know. Prophets tell you what they've seen. They always killed prophets. They never killed scribes. Which one are we? How does witnessing about Christ actually finally conquer your hate, right? That's that, That, to me... The contrarian in me asked that question to Jesus, okay? How does bearing witness about what Christ has done for me conquer people who hate me for bearing witness about Christ? That's my question. I want to understand that. So I thought deeply about that because when you bear witness about Christ, sometimes it doesn't conquer the hate. Sometimes it produces the hate. You get more hatred towards you. You get more division. But see, like I said, to really bear witness about Christ is to plead with. And to weep over people who do not yet know how deeply loved they are by Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus did when he was looking over Jerusalem? Several times, uh, you can see it throughout the Gospels. But he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long for you like a mother hen for her chicks. I wish that I could gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't let me. The witnessing comes from that spirit, which is a pleading with people to receive the love of God and a weeping over people who have not. And you'll do that 
when you are 100% secure and certain that you are loved by God. So how does bearing witness about Christ conquer the hatred? To completely know that you are loved by God is what produces bearing witness. And when you know that you are completely loved by God, the hatred that comes back to you doesn't offend you, but it hurts you for those that still don't know Christ. Does that make sense how bearing witness about Christ conquers the hatred? No longer does the hatred rock your world and offend you because what you care about most is God's love for you and that gives you a secure base to stand on for your entire life so when people do hate you, you just weep for them. You don't weep for yourself because they hate you. It conquers that hate. But finally, the potential. What does it have for us? Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He tells us the truth. He says it's going to be bad. If you notice in chapter 16, this is the last section, 1 through 4, Jesus says two things. One, you'll be put out of the synagogue. Now, I haven't been to a synagogue. Have you? Anybody going to synagogues lately? Not many of us. The synagogue for the Jew was the center of their life. It's where education happened. It's where business deals were talked about. It's where religious worship took place. It's where sometimes even commerce happened. It's where relationships were formed. The synagogue was the center of the Jewish life. And when Jesus says, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue because of your allegiance to me, because you don't fit into the mold of what the world says and what the world is doing, what he's saying to us is you and I will be pressed to the margins of where all the major sometimes conversations are happening in the world, you'll feel left out. And this is the natural tension for us in our flesh that we do not like when we bear allegiance to Christ, that we get left out sometimes of the center of the life that's taking place. And the second thing he says is that you'll be killed, and some people will think they're doing this in service to God, and I will not in this moment analogize that statement. We live in a culture that doesn't experience that, but just today, there were 21 Egyptian Christians killed for professing to Christ. It happened today. The most murderous century time in history, Christian history, is right now for Christians. It's hard for us to attach to that because we just don't experience it. But that's real in in the history of how many people are really being martyred for the cause of Christ. But here's the deal. Jesus says it'll be bad, but he also says it will be temporary. You notice two times in that part in chapter 16, 1 through 4, he says the hour and then their hour. That phrase, hour, is a temporary time. It's temporary. And it's within this temporary hatred that you and I will have our faith in Christ Fortified is the heat that allows us to see what Christ is made of. Will he care for us and what we're made of? Will we hang on? And Jesus says this, the heat is coming and I'm telling you about the heat for this reason. So that I can keep you from falling away. I can hold on to you. And then he says, so that's him to us. I'll keep you. And then us to him, he says in verse four, I've said these things so that you will remember The heat both proves who Jesus is and who we are. And God, thank him. Let's thank God for the heat that comes to us to let us see clearly who Jesus really is and who we really are. You see, they will have an hour, the world, a temporary hour of hatred that seems like it's conquering us. It feels like that right now in our world. We, the, the rhetoric of Christians is so intense sometimes with, with you know, the world and conquering us. 
It feels that way. But Christians are feeling more and more alone every hour by hour by all the trials we're facing. But we all must face it. And we can because we have one that's going to walk alongside of us. Jesus was also staring down at this very moment the barrel of his own hour. And he tells us about ours facing his own hour. Look at the end of chapter 16. He says in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, his hour. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart or be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It was his hour that conquered all the hours that we would face. In fact, time stood still in that hour. The earth was completely darkened. God completely away from the earth, all of mankind. And it was black. And three days later, there would be a morning, a Sunday morning, when the tomb would open up and there would be an hour in which life would be given back to a lifeless body. And deity would be saying, I accept the sacrifice. You're justified. You have me. You can have joy and peace. I have overcome the world. You see, the greatest thing the world can threaten you with is to take your life. And what Jesus says is you may still live in a broken world that has the power of death still living within it, but doesn't have the power anymore because you now have a Savior that has walked through death to the other side and says, come with me. So all the hatred that comes by allegiance to Christ in that relationship, Jesus says, I've overcome it. Every bit of the world, and you can walk with me. And we want to help you walk through the hour of your temptation and trial because of the hour that Jesus endured. So we're going to sing a song right now. What number you got, Sam? 910. And we are excited for those that may want to know and come closer to Christ and lovingly here for those that may need to come closer to Him in this way. Come as we stand and sing.